Welcome to Salem Alliance Church. For more information about this podcast and other resources, please visit us at salemalliance.org. This week's message is by Rod Pepping. Well, good morning, church. We are glad you're here with us this morning. My name is Rod. I'm the outreach pastor here. uh, And we are in the middle of a series called Text Messages, where we are looking at the minor prophets. Um, And I'm I'm really glad we're in this message and and we're kind of walking through the minor prophets because I'm sure like if you're like me, the minor prophets are something that you read all the time in the Bible. I'm sure you probably have them memorized and in order. Um, you know, you know how to pronounce all the funny names, all of that, right? Uh, most people don't, the minor prophets aren't a go-to scripture place. You may know a scripture here or there or out of here or out of there, but, but they're not usually a place where you would go uh, for scriptures. And so I, I have loved that we have, have started digging in because uh, there is a lot of judgmental language, right? The, the judgment of God is coming on the people and you kind of read that, but, but the, the beautiful thing about the minor prophets is there's also these slivers of beautiful hope intermixed in there. And so uh, week one, Brian Candelo was going through Amos, right? And, and so he talked a little bit about that plumb line uh, that God calls us to and that idea that the plumb line is, is God's righteousness and that we lean away and we get off kilter and so we are called back to that continually. Um, and out of that Righteousness inside of us comes the idea that that justice uh, flows out of that. And then uh, last week, um, uh, Steve talked about how our our uh, our walk with God can look like a bad marriage. Right? We are the adulterous ones that we we continually uh, move away from God, but God redeems us and and paid the price for us anyway. So this week, we are walking into the book of Micah, which is a great book, uh, and we're going to get into it. But if you want to watch this short video, and then we'll continue. The book of the prophet Micah. Micah lived in a small town named Moreshet in the southern kingdom of Judah, about the same time as Isaiah. And both the northern and southern kingdoms of Israel had split long ago, and both had been violating their covenant with the God of Israel. So Micah warned that God would bring the big bad empire of Assyria to take out the northern kingdom and come ravage Jerusalem. And he also warned that after them, Babylon would bring an even greater destruction. Like all the prophets, Micah spoke on God's behalf to accuse Israel, or as he puts it in chapter 3, I am filled with strength, with the spirit of God, with justice and power to declare how Israel has rebelled. And so, most of this book explores Micah's accusations and his warnings of God's judgment on Israel. But Micah also had a message of hope that countered these warnings about the restoration God would bring on the other side of his judgment. And if you dive into the book with us, you'll see how this works. So the first two sections of the book develop Micah's accusations and warnings against Israel and its leaders. So part one opens with the poetic description of God appearing over Israel, just like he did at Mount Sinai. There's fire and smoke and earthquake, but he hasn't come to make a covenant this time. He's come to bring his judgment on Israel for over 500 years of rebellion. Micah goes on to name all of these towns and cities in Israel that are the culprits of all of this rebellion, God's coming 
for them. But why exactly? So Micah picks a fight with Israel's leaders. He says that they've become wealthy through theft and greed. He alludes to the story of Ahab stealing a family vineyard from Naboth in 1 Kings chapter 21. But also it's because Israel's prophets are corrupt. They're quite happy to offer promises of God's protection to anyone who can afford to pay them. No, Micah says, God has withdrawn his protection from Israel. In the second section of accusations, Micah describes even more how Israel's leaders and prophets have together committed grave injustice. They run the land through bribery, they bend justice to favor the wealthy, and the poor are deprived of their land, their security, and their hope. And all of this is a violation of the laws of the Torah, which declare it illegal to sell land that belongs to families, even if they're poor. And so we find out that God's judgment is going to take the form of an oppressive nation that comes to take out the northern kingdom and Jerusalem and its temple, which will be reduced to ruins. What a fun message. <laughs> Lucky me. Let me read a little bit of what's going on out of Micah 2, just so you kind of get a sense uh, of, of what they're dealing with. It says this, when you want a piece of land, you find a way to seize it. When you want someone's house, you take it by fraud and violence. You cheat a man of his property, stealing his family inheritance. Yet to, at this very hour, my people rise up against me like an enemy. You steal the shirts right off the backs of those who trusted you, making them as ragged as men returning from battle. You have evicted women from their pleasant homes and forever stripped their children of all that God would have given them. Man, talk about living in a time where greed ruled the day, right? And where people were, were cheating one another and doing crooked business deals and all of that. I am so glad that's not us today. The question is, what is the oppressive ruler that's crippled us? If Micah were here today, what would he say, right? What would be the message that Micah would stand up here and preach to you? Because there is a crippling ruler that is oppressing us uh, and that, that we are um, subjected to, and that's called consumerism. If God were to send us a text message, I'm afraid it might look a lot like this. Your consumer life is killing you. It has created an I need to be greater and God needs to be lesser mentality. Hashtag come back to me. Let me uh, say a few words on consumerism as we get started this morning. I think consumerism is a problem of the heart that has probably been around since the beginning of man. I don't think consumerism is the problem. I think your hearts are bent away from God and that is the problem. So as I talk about consumerism today, it's really easy to go, Rod just doesn't like stuff. It has nothing to do with your stuff. It has to do with your heart and how that's bent. Now, that being said, let me say this. I think America, we excel at consumerism. We have it down to a science. Let me give you a, a little idea. So he, here is a definition of consumerism. 
It's an economic theory which states that a progressively greater level of consumption is beneficial to the consumer. So in other words, the more stuff you gather, the better you feel or the safer you feel. Or, so it, it's all about gathering stuff, right? The more I get, the better off I am. Now, he, here's a little bit of a history from the 1900s. Early 1900s, Industrial Revolution is in full swing. Consumer goods start to come to us at an ever cheaper and increasing rate. Uh, and then 1919, something happens that really changes the landscape of the U.S. And that's GMC starts their first consumer debt program where they will give you a car and you can pay it off in loan payments. Before that, everybody paid for cash, even mortgages and everything. But 1919, GMC changed that. 19 1924, Henry Ford uh, created this idea of, let me get this right, of planned obsolescence. And that's the idea that you're going to buy something that is going to be obsolete very quickly, that you'll buy something that, that you're going to get rid of. And what he did was he figured out if he could come up with a new model every year, within two or three years, even though the car is working good, people will want the new and cool model. So they'll get rid of their cars at an ever-increasing rate as long as every year he starts to, to create new models. That was 1924. 1925, keeping up with the Joneses started to become a saying, that idea that we just need to keep up with all of our neighbors. And in the late 20s, 1920s, companies produced more than we could consume and a surplus of cheap goods became a contributing factor to the market crash. 1955, uh, economist Victor Lebo said this, our enormously productive economy demands that we make consumption our way of life, that we convert the buying and use of goods into rituals, that we seek our spiritual satisfaction and our ego satisfaction in consumption. We need things consumed, burned up, worn out, replaced and discarded at an ever increasing rate. And as true as that was in 1955, that's even more true today. Now, <clears throat> I recognize for those economists in the room that it's impossible not to be a consumer. Our whole system is, if everybody quit consuming, America would crash. I get that. In fact, we are so set up that the government is set up on the idea that you would consume. See, the more you consume, the more taxes that are paid and the more money they have to spend on whatever it is the government spends money on. And, we, and it's just this big, wicked circle, right? In fact, how do we know if we're in a recession or if things are going well? It's something called consumer confidence. So in other words, we measure all of how America's doing on how confident you are to spend money. What happens when the economy's down? we have what's called a stimulus, which is literally, I give you cash so you'll spend more and get more stuff. That's how we stimulate the economy. So I understand, I mean, consumer debt is out of control. I understand the idea that, that we can't step away from this, but what I think we can start to do is say, what are the harmful sides of consumerism and where do we wanna be an investor instead of a consumer, right? So, so I'm not railing against the whole system uh, and, and I think it's impossible. I just... Much like a fish doesn't know it's wet, sometimes I think we don't know we're consumers. It's, we're swimming in it. We, we, we can't even see outside of, of what it is, a life outside of consumerism would be like. So let me start with this. There, I think when consumerism just runs its own course without being in check, there's three harmful ways or three harmful things that we see. The first one is this. Uh, consumerism let go, it warps human values. 
our human values get warped. Today, more than any day uh, in, in the history, there are more people enslaved today than ever in the history of the world. Boys and girls, men and women are being sold all over the world. And that's a little bit of an easy problem to go, well, that's over there, at least that's not me. But America, 40% of all the food produced in America gets thrown away. And I get it, you're important. You need the perfect looking carrot when you buy carrots or the, an apple that's not a different color. I get that. You're such a consumer that you wouldn't buy a tomato that has a blemish on it. So they don't even bring them to market. They just throw them away. 40% of all the food produced in America is wasted. Now, here's an even better statistic for you. 80% of the country knows it's a problem but doesn't want to do anything about it because we're consumers at nature. We've even done this. We've even tried to figure out how to get our kids to be consumers earlier in life. In 1980, 100 million was spent on advertising to children. In 1997, 1.5 billion was spent on advertising to your children. We've just turned our whole society into consumers. And when that happens, this second piece becomes a reality, and that is this, that everything becomes a need. If you have kids, you get this. I can't tell you how many times I've heard this. Dad, I need this. You, you need it? Yes, I need this. But you know what I hate is when my wife asks me the same question. Like, let's be honest. It usually doesn't, she doesn't say, do you need that? She goes, do you really think that's wise to spend our money on that? Right? I, and, and it just... Everything becomes a need. I, I saw a study I read, two, that a study was done two years ago, and this is what it said. If, if you were below the poverty line, there were 12 items that you thought were, were things that you would need for survival. If you're right above the poverty line, believe it or not, those things drop to about 10 things. Once you hit over $100,000, those needs come, become about 27 things. The more we make, the more we need. Rockefeller, who was the richest person on earth at one time, they asked him how much was enough and he said one dollar more. People who win the lottery, most of them within five years file bankruptcy. We have this insatiable desire and it's really not about the stuff. Like I said, I, I think it's the ability that we cannot find joy and be satisfied. Contentment is so hard for us to find. Look at this, Proverbs says this, Proverbs 38 and nine. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? And lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. How many of us wanna pray this prayer? Now, I, I've prayed half of this prayer God, please give me stuff. I, give me the job. Give me the promotion. God, you know, I'll serve you better if I get whatever. I, I don't, I've never said, God, I feel like I'm drifting from you. Would you just remove my money and my stuff so I would see you more clearly? Would you kind of notch me down a level because I feel like my stuff is getting in the way of you? I, I don't pray that a lot. In fact, for me, everything becoming a need is just a natural reaction. Uh, Diane and I have been trying to save. We've kind of been in this time right now in our lives. So we've been saving. And, and uh, I don't know, about a month ago, I've been kind of saving for this thing over the years. And I decided I needed this thing. 
Now, Diane was like, eh, Rod, I don't think you need it, and it's probably not important. We should probably save our money. And, and all of a sudden, I got entitled. You know, I'm a grown man. Can't tell me what to do with my money. I work hard. The reason I work hard and I make money and I save is so I can spend my money on what I want. She was like, I don't think it's a good idea. And I went out and spent the money and bought it anyway. I know all the guys just groaned. You know how the story ends. <laughs> Didn't end well. It was, it was a discussion in our house. An intense time of fellowship we had, I'll tell you. <laughs> it was one of those times of... Now, that thing didn't fix me. It didn't fill the hole inside of me. But all of a sudden, I realized it became a need. It wasn't a want, and it certainly was a want. I didn't need it to live, but it became a need because it's just this idea of consumerism. The last thing I think is that we become self-obsessed. We become the kind of people who the world revolves around us, right? Uh, I've said this before. I really like you as long as you're not driving slow in the fast lane. I'm important, you see. I got places to go, and where I have to be is certainly more important than where you are. Would you just get out of my way? My wife, every once in a while, I'll be driving, and I'll be like, what's that? And she's like, they're probably having a bad day. And then I'm like, oh, now you've humanized them, and I care about them, and I'm not so angry at them. I just want them out of my way. I'm sure they're driving that way to make my life miserable, right? Because life revolves around me. Uh, there, there are many other ways I look at that. I, I will just jump in front of you to get on the airplane first. I love being the first one to board the airplane and kind of sit in the airplane and put on my headphones so nobody talks to me. And it's just, uh, it's very important for me because, I, you know, the world revolves around me and my life is so important. I am so glad that that attitude never leaks into the church. There are times I think, the customer is always right and you can have it your way, that people think those are the logo of the church. I have a pretty unique aspect on this because I get to see the emails or, or you know, hear the grumblings or do things. I, I hear this a lot of time, Rod, I don't like the music. I don't connect to it. We don't play enough hymns. Man, Rod, we play too many hymns. Or here's my favorite. It's not really a hymn if you change the tune. The words stay the same, but that's not really the hymn. We do away with drums. We need more drums. Rod, I... I can't believe we'd put pallets on the stage. I mean, that church, they're in pews. How ridiculous is that, right? We just, my kids don't connect. My teenagers, it's just not the, quite the youth group that I was used to. I mean, we all of a sudden come in with this attitude of, of, of wanting. We're a church of up to like 6,000 people. Surely it would be very easy to have enough volunteers to get ministry done around here. How come children's church has to beg people to watch kids? I get it. You want everybody to watch your kids, but you surely don't want to be, you know, you don't want to have to spend one weekend every two months to watch somebody else's kids. I mean, you know. Rod, I come here to be fed. I come here for a spiritual experience so I can sit here and everybody else can feed me and take care of me and sing all the right songs and, and do this so I can be taken care of. Outreach is another interesting place. Uh, I sit outside there a lot of times for events, and one of the most amazing things to me is to watch people grab the bulletin and decide whether to enter the sanctuary on who is preaching. A lot of them go home. Oh, I don't like that person. They don't connect with me. I'm sure after this message, everybody's gonna see my name and probably get out of here, right? I mean, it's like, I don't know what another one of those messages. 
but it just, it just happens. Uh, for outreach, here's a great thing. Uh, block parties. We put together a thing and we had these block parties and it was free. All you have to do is pick it up and go so you can meet your neighbors. And in a church of 5,000, the first year we had nine. The second year we had 22, which was much better until we figured out 20% of those were by community entities that wanted to borrow our equipment. So we do movie outreaches. It's like, hey, go get your neighbors, talk to somebody about Jesus and bring them. And the truth of the matter is, no, it's just a place where we get to watch a movie together because we like that and we want to consume. I get that this is a tough message. Think about what Israel felt like. I mean, they were getting this message for hundreds of years. In fact, Israel in, the, in the, the books of the minor prophets start to say, quit telling us what we need. Tell us what we want to hear. Be nice to us, right? And I get it. And I know there's some of you that are there they're going, hey, dude, this is from the guy that's wearing designer jeans and preaching from an iPod mini. I get it. I'm just as broken as you are in this. I think this, this isn't a, a you message. This is a me message. This is an us message. This is a how come we are driven by consumerism and stuff and how come it draws us so far away from God? Here, I've got three points uh, that are gonna come out of Micah, but, but this message in Micah, this scripture, many people know it. It's, it's kind of one of the famous ones in Micah. It's this, the Lord has told you what is good and this is what is required of you, right? To do what is right, to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. I think if we take those three things to heart, they will combat consumerism. And here's how I, I have those looking. The first point is this, when consumerism warps human values, we need to engage in real relationships. This is to do what is right. It's amazing to me how much when we start to engage in relationships that people uh, become right-sized in our minds. Like I said earlier, if I'm driving crazy and Diane's like, they didn't really mean to cut you off. They just are having a bad day. I'm like, you know, you start to see people human. Your neighbor who drives you nuts, we all have them, right? And for whatever reason, when you start to get to know them and you start to understand their story, right? All of a sudden doing what is right is easier. You don't see them as being there to either hinder your needs or just to meet your needs. You start to, you start to get into this place that, that we do what is right. Another way that I think is so important is, is being in real relationships that, that give you great accountability, that tell you uh, not what you want to hear, but what's real. I told the story a few years ago in, in a group, a uh, men's group, uh, about, you know, boarding an airplane, and we were talking, and I was talking about how people drive me nuts, and, and they were like, Rod, what is your problem? Right? Life doesn't revolve around you. And I was like, oh, yeah, you're right. It doesn't, and maybe there's some great times to talk to people, and I don't need to be the first person on the plane. And, and so I think when you're in real relationships that, that all of a sudden our human value, we start to see people as having human value, and we don't start to live in this transactional way where we're consumers, we start investing in the people around us. I think it changes everything. The second part is this. When consumerism makes everything become a need, we need to get out of our comfort zone. This is to love mercy. The best way to combat this is generosity. And I love it. When, when you find it, you don't have to serve at Salem Alliance. I know I just kind of went off on that, but here, here's what I'm saying. Find a place in your community, in your schools, at Salem Alliance, 
maybe overseas. Find some place to serve. When you start showing mercy to people, it will right-size you. I'm always amazed at when I go and, and serve at Feed Salem or I'm doing the trunk or treat or I'm doing all these different things and I'm serving in all these different aspects. I come home, not so many things feel like needs. When I just sit around the home and, you know, my home is my castle and I, everything becomes a need. And so I think when we are serving one another, when we're caring for one another, when we're doing that, that it totally right-sizes us. I was laughing. I got an email last night, late last night. Um, somebody was at the 6.30 service and they said, hey, Rod, I've, I've been driving a, an old car and, you know, it's not broken or anything, but I, I've, I was getting ready to go down and buy a new car, but I'm not going to do that now. And then he said this at the end of his email, which I thought was just fascinating. He said, I wonder what God's going to do with that extra $20,000 I was going to spend. And I thought, now there's, a, I mean, I wouldn't think that. I would think maybe I'll just get along with that and then that other $20,000 I'll spend on me. But he, he was like, I wonder what God's got in store for that. It's just that idea of generosity. And when we get into generosity, not everything becomes a need. The next thing is this. When consumerism takes over and we become self-obsessed, we need to gift the church to the next generation. We want to walk humbly with God. And here, here's my point. Are we walking in the sanctuary not so worried about our spiritual experience or how we connect? Or are we saying, I want the next generation to connect, right? Are we walking in and going, man, that pastor's old because he's talking about stuff like VCRs and I don't know. Or maybe you're older and you're like, man, the pastor's up there and he's saying things are on fleek and I don't know what that means. So I'm so confused. And, or are we walking in saying, you know what? I, I want to walk in with open hands. I want my kids to know about Jesus. I want their kids to know about Jesus. And I get that sometimes it's not all about me. I want to serve where I can. I want to love. I want to be generous. The church is not here to meet my needs, but I am here to meet the needs of others through the church. And when we start to live out that way, life becomes so different. You know, I love in the middle of Micah, uh, chapter five, there's this passage that keeps, uh, that, that is, is used and quoted when the birth of Jesus comes. And it's just this ray of hope in the middle of Micah. Uh, and it talks about this, that hope really isn't, a feeling, hope is a person, and that person is coming soon. And so here's the idea. Without Jesus, we fall into those three traps all the time. We're just, our lives, it's, life's about us and gets running. But when we say yes to Jesus, accept what Jesus does, he puts a new heart in us. We start to have mercy. Uh, everything changes with Jesus. I didn't say things get better. Sometimes they don't, but I think everything changes. And I think the only hope we have is in Jesus. We sing that song, right? Right? Uh, holiness is Christ in me, right? It makes a big difference. So when we understand that Jesus went and died on the cross for you and me, that he shed his blood so, so that you and I could live uh, the life everlasting starting today, everything changes. We can be generous out of a different place. It's not self-driven. Life isn't always about us, but it's about what God has come to do and redeem the world. Read this with me. Micah 5, but you, Bethlehem, David's country, the runt of the litter, for you will come, uh, from you will come the leader who will shepherd rule Israel. He will be no upstart, no pretender. His family tree is ancient and distinguished. He will stand tall in his shepherd's rule by God's strength, centered in the majesty of God revealed. 
and the people will have a good and safe home for the whole world. He will hold him in respect, peacemaker of the world. I just love that. I think it's, it, it's, it's an amazing verse. So uh, one of the things I wanted to do uh, today was to give you a little bit of a sense of what Micah is. Right, Because I think uh, we can read through Micah and we can read uh, all of the seven chapters. And so what I've done is, is I have taken Micah and I, I've kind of put it together. You can't follow it if you're going to just shut your Bibles because you're not going to. So I took it and I condensed Micah into one chapter. And then I rewrote some of it. And, and it, the idea is this. If you want to understand Micah, if Micah were here today standing here, I kind of feel like this is the message he would preach. So, so just take a minute and breathe. I just, just let this rest on you. And he, here would be Micah, kind of if Micah were standing here today. Attention. Let the people of the world listen. Let the earth and everything in it hear. The sovereign Lord is making accusations against you. The Lord speaks from his holy temple. Look, the Lord is coming. He leaves his throne in heaven and tramples the heights of the earth. The mountains melt beneath his feet and flow into the valley like wax in a fire, like water pouring down a hill. To all the people who covet beauty, it will fade away. To the proud, you will fall. To the rich, destitution is not far away. To the healthy, the time of sickness and death is near. To the wise, your foolishness is showing. What sorrow awaits you who lie awake at night thinking up evil plans? You rise at dawn and hurry to carry them out simply because you have the power to do so. You value possessions over people. You have an insatiable desire for more. It is never satisfied. You want for everything except the Lord. Pity the people who have become self-sufficient, those who need the Lord for nothing. They see themselves above everyone and fill their lives with things that satisfy their desires. They use people for their own purposes with no thoughts of others. What sorrow awaits the people who are not satisfied? They take blessings and destroy them in self-serving pursuits. Everything becomes a need to fill the hole that God was designed for. But this is what the Lord says. I will reward your evil with evil. You won't be able to pull your neck out of the noose. You will no longer walk around proudly for it will be a terrible time. In that day, your enemies will make fun of you by singing the songs of despair about you. We are finished, completely ruined. God has confiscated our land, taking it from us. He has given our fields to those who betray us. Others will set your boundaries then and the Lord's people will have no say how the land is divided. But there is hope for I sent my son. The one from Jerusalem from days of old. He has brought you together like a flock. He protects you as the good shepherd. He will satisfy your needs and forgive you of your sins. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the Christ. Who is a God like you? Thank you, God, that you are quick to forgive and slow to anger. You show us mercy and loving compassion. You are mighty Lord, and we shall follow you all the rest of our days. Amen, church. Amen. Bow your heads as we pray. Thank you, Lord, for 
the lessons in Micah. Lord, thank you for uh, the tough words, but the hope that is interwoven. Lord, we know that you are a good God that loves us. Lord, that there is no condemnation in Christ. Lord, that, that because that you came and you died for our sins, Lord, that we follow you and we say yes to you. Lord, that we are free. The things, uh, the bondage of this world and the things that hold us captive have no power over us. Lord, we are just so grateful for you. We love you so much. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Salem Alliance Church is a community of Jesus followers located in downtown Salem, Oregon, and we are passionate about our city being a city at peace with God. If you have a request that we could pray for, please email us at prayers at salemalliance.org. You can view today's entire service online at livestream.com backslash Salem Alliance.